Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your host, and Kate, like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, let's the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. And uh, Noel, we've we've hit it. We've hit the beginning of the there's no TV to talk about. Because last week there was little TV to talk about, but we had a lot of TV to talk about. Um, yes. Fans of genre and um, ladies kicking butt will be excited that Winona Earp season four just got a premiere date. July oh, 20. Oh, Yes, that just That's got announced news. today. And, and a trailer, and it looks hella fun. Um, okay. and it's like July 26th, 24th, something like that. End of July. Okay. And of course, Lucifer fans will know that that has been announced for August. Yes. Um, but we're going to have some dry weeks here <laughs> in June and the beginning of July as we wait for As like, we've got a couple shows that are still finishing. Um, but then, yeah, it's going to get thin. So that's when we'll, we'll start getting creative listeners. But for now, uh, this week it works out because... We are on a bit of a recording time crunch, so that that works. Um, but uh, hopefully, you know, next week I will have seen the Adventure Time movie, so we can talk about that. We'll have some. There are things happening, but this week is definitely going to be short. And considering how long we've gone in recent episodes, it's probably for the best. I agree. <laughs> there is some TV news going on this week, but the main thing we wanted to just spend a few minutes talking about here at the top is the voice casting. Um, news at Big Mouth and Central Park. And this is that Jenny Slate uh, has decided to step down from her role on Big Mouth, where she was voicing a biracial character. Missy, yes. Missy. And she is not comfortable with that. She had some reflection and determined that she feels the that the character and um, that you know, as, as a biracial character, that that character Missy should be voiced by a person of color, by by a, a black woman um, or person of color, uh, and she's not comfortable voicing that role anymore. And so there's been lots of conversation around this. Um, I believe so. She, that that character is going to be recast. I know on Central Park there is another character, which is an animated show, by the way, on Apple Plus. If you don't get that that channel or that app or whatever. Platform. Service. Platform. Thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Place where you watch the shows. Um, that There's also a character who's biracial who is voiced in uh, on that show by Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell will no longer be voicing that character, and they're going to have her voice a different character instead and, and bringing a different, bring in a different actor um, to play that character on Central Park. We haven't seen Central Park yet, but this has prompted a lot of different discussions around Twitter about... Um, casting for characters of color and, you know, whether this is something that should be um, cast with actors who are of color. Uh, so specifically, people have been bringing up, well, Phil Lamar voices Samurai Jack. And for those who don't know, Phil, Phil Lamar is black and Samurai Jack is not. Um, Samurai Jack is Japanese, I guess. Yes. yes. Thank you. It's been a while. Uh, so people are bringing up that. As an example of, well, he's a wonderful voice actor, and this is a wonderful performance, so is he, should you know, like, is it wrong, you know, like that kind of a thing? And I think that that is absolutely 100% missing the point. And the point here is that Jenny Slate did not want to voice this character anymore and did not feel comfortable doing so and that it was appropriate, and so stepped back from the role. And the people, uh, the creators of the show are 
respecting that decision instead of forcing her to, you know, work through her contract and, and are planning to cast a black actor for that role. And similarly on Central Park. And I think that while there is some nuance here, I think the main thing is there is not enough representation in animation and in all of Hollywood um, for people of color. Um, it's certainly not proportionate to American society. And so if, you know, something that Al- a friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, has said previously when we talked about Al- uh, Avatar The Last Airbender on Streaming a Place, if we lived in a world that did not have, you know, centuries of uh, oppression and discrimination against actors of color, um, then maybe that's a different conversation. But that's not the world we live in. So um, I think it's perfectly appropriate, and I I applaud Jenny Slate for having that awareness and s- reflecting on this and coming to this decision. Uh, and I'm super on board, and I think that it's kind of a ridiculous thing to be up in arms about, is where I'm at. Where are you at with this, Noel? I, I'm in a weird sort of space with it in that, I mean, I appreciate that Jenny Slate came to this realization. Um, and I think that it's good mm-hmm. that she did. And I think it's, I think it's good for the show and I think it's good for the character. Um, I'm less forgiving of Central Park since mm-hmm. critics and journalists brought this up to the showrunners at the Television Critics Association press junket about Central Park to their faces during the presentation. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of collectively went, it's not a big deal. To which I go, well, I'm glad you think it's a big deal now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and not even that, but there was even pushback on it because they're like, hey, David Diggs is playing an old white woman. So, you know, what does it matter? It's like, well, it matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just because you have Stanley Tucci and you have uh, David Diggs playing, I think both playing old white women, that does not mean <laughs> that it's okay to cast white actors to play, uh, in this case, biracial uh, biracial characters or uh, characters of color. It's like they're different things; <laughs> they're not the same. Yeah, and I think this is especially important in terms of when we're thinking about representation in general and what that means and what that looks like and also what that sounds like. And it's. A difficult needle to thread because if you, especially with animation, I think that finding a actor who can understand that in a different way and live that experience and how that gets expressed vocally, I think is really important. And I think in the case of Big Mouth and Central Park, it was very much a, well, we all really like working with these people because we're friends. Mm-hmm. So let's have our friends over and do this. And I mean, nothing against Big Mouth because I think it's a good voice cast and same thing with Central Park, um, having not watched the show, but it's a very well-rounded voice cast in terms of the talent involved. Um, But I do think that it's just really frustrating that it took this awareness and this moment for them to sort of realize it um, instead of... At least in Central Park's case, realizing it sooner. Um, but this is part of like the trend that's happening now with like the Dixie Chicks or Lady Annabellum and this kind of stuff of realizing, oh right, we did. We just learned what Annabellum was. We <laughs> we didn't know, and it's like, oh, 
No. <laughs> yeah. Or um, the Dixie Chicks. I know what the word Dixie means to you, but yes. also, have you considered what it means to millions of other people? <laughs> right. And that's sort of where I kind of fall on it. I'm excited for the Chicks' new album, by the way. Let me just say. The okay. Chicks, I'm very, I'm excited for their new album. Let's they're, talk about Chicks, man. They, they, well, uh. just like, they're very talented musicians. Always appreciate mm-hmm. seeing a violinist up there. You know I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, good for them for changing their names. <laughs> yeah. As for some in something like David Diggs's case or Phil Lamour's case, it becomes, again, an issue of, I think, representation and talent in, within the industry. And I'm more okay with that here, um, especially in Diggs's case, at least. I think you can make a strong case against Phil Lamar in Samurai Jack based on these issues. Um, and I'd be more receptive to that than I would to necessarily the David Diggs one. Um, is sort of where I land on that, which isn't anything against Phil Lamar, because I think that perfor- his vocal performance in Samurai Jack's fantastic. Um, but, I mean, I also feel that way about um, uh, Mae Whitman and Doom Katara and Avatar The Last Airbender, but that also should not have happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, that's how I feel about that. So I'm glad that we're having this discussion because it gets to how we're talking about representation and what representation means. Because it's one thing for it to be just visual, I think. But then when we put someone behind that character and that voice and that performance, it gets a lot squishier and it tells us about access and it tells us about who is valued in that industry. And I think that that's also the really important thing that comes out of that, which is the other reason why, while I think that there's a good case to make against Lamar, it's also a case that is less, I think, important than Slate or Bell's cases. Does all of that make sense? I'm yeah. very tired. I didn't go to sleep until 3.30 <laughs> this morning. Oh, so gosh. I'm very tired. Um, so I hope that made sense. Yes. No, I, I think it does make sense. And okay. um, yeah, I just... the 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 And again, why would we spend time on Twitter going into YouTube spirals around hashtags? Um, but if you like me have on this topic, just the notion of that, like, this is a thing to get upset about, that these actors have volunteered to, you know, who both also, by the way, are doing great for themselves. Right. <laughs> these no, are not struggling up-and-comers. We don't need to worry about Kristen Bell and Jenny Slate's um, lifestyle. Like, Kristen <laughs> Bell has numerous revenue sources yeah. just on advertising and spokesperson stuff alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the notion of people being upset that, which some people are, that they came to, like, that Slate specifically came to this conclusion on her own and made this decision and is being supported by the show that she's on is controversial, is ridiculous to me. Um, there are so many bigger things to be worried about right now. So let's let's look at those. <laughs> sort of, uh, let's go yay Good job, Jenny Slate, for getting there, and these shows for getting there, and let's be thoughtful about our voice casting in the future, is sort of where I'm at, so. Yes. Anyways, um, today we're going to be talking about season two of Top Boy, or Top Boy Summer House on Netflix, Um, and that's going to be coming at the end of the show, and (laughs) cheerful 
uh, season of television. It's 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 good. It's well made. It's just it's it's intense. So we're gonna do better by you all next week. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're going for something totally different next week. Uh, but again, four episodes, so not as intense, but still, it's it's not the happiest of shows. So yeah. we get it if you if you want to wait uh, until a less tumultuous time. But still had a fun conversation. That's coming at the end of the show. And uh, now to head into our weekend TV, we're going to listen to a little Twilight Zone by Two Unlimited because Stargirl is bringing the 90s jams, guys. So, yeah, we're going to listen to a little music and head back right after this with our weekend TV. Again, that was Twilight Zone by Two Unlimited. Uh, I'm not a 90s jam person so much. Mm -hmm. I was like absorbed it having grown up during that time period. Um, But I definitely grew up more on like my parents would put on the oldie stations. So I was listening to 60s, 70s. 80s, 50s music. Uh, I was listening to Ella <laughs> um, more than 90s jams at that time. Um, and so I've been enjoying um, the the Stargirl music supervision and the the song choices quite a bit. Um, obviously, some of them like their prominent use of Hanson in the pilot. Uh, mm-hmm. I have, have I have enjoyed and like caught in the moment, but it's also been when I go through and look at what are some songs I could do for this week's podcast. Stargirl's becoming a pretty reliable source for some interesting and, and fun music. Yeah, and listeners, I want to point out that Kate corrected me on a Smash Mouth Chumbawamba mix-up on Streaming in Place <laughs> earlier this week, and I was floored because Chumbawamba and Smash Mouth, neither of them are German or French composers that have been dead for 300 years. So yeah. I was just floored. I know. Look at that, that right? Me. I spent like <laughs> one summer watching MTV because we got cable um, the summer before my eighth grade. And so I watched mm-hmm. like TRL like every day. Sure. Um, and so if it, if it was on T- if it was on MTV in a, that short span of time, I probably yeah. am familiar with it. But that's about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, this week in TV, we're going to kick things off nice and dour with Perry Mason, the pilot, Chapter 1. Then we're going to go over to comedy briefly with Full Frontal with Samantha B, June 24th, 2020. And then, of course, it's time for <laughs> reality, which means it is the beginning for Jelly's Marble Runs Marble League 2020. They have their opening ceremony and their first episode, which is balancing. If you don't know what we're talking about, uh, this was a thing sponsored. It's it's a YouTube series where they race marbles, and then they do commentary, and it's ridiculous and fun. And their their marble league has been sponsored by uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about it because it's fun and we're dorks. Uh, then we're gonna move on to Netflix, which has Crazy Delicious, which is a new uh, reality competition show for cooking uh, and baking. And then we have some further thoughts on Flora's Lava. That's right. 
I watched it. I watched all of season one of Floor is Lava, and Nola's watched the rest of it, and so we have more thoughts on Floor is Lava, and including my uh, horror that I was calling it The Floor is Lava. Right, and, it and is I was not. doing the same thing, and it is not. I realized that when I was watching the second half, and I, I felt really bad. Yeah, it's Floor is Lava, and uh, shame on me. So, correcting that for the record now. Then we have All-Stars, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, uh, Get a Room. Then we're going to go over and briefly mention Adventure Time, Distant Lands, BMO, before we go to Stargirl, The Justice Society, and run things out with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., A Trout in the Milk. So, first up is Perry Mason. And, Noel, you had some concerns about Perry yes. Mason. Do you want to remind the listeners what those concerns were? I felt like, based on the trailer, that nothing in this said Perry Mason to me and a lot of it just said we need to do a noir story. We want to do a noir story. We have this property of Perry Mason. What if we put Perry Mason in it? And that's that's what I felt about the trailer. Um, and Kate, I feel aggressively vindicated. <laughs> yep. It is that. That's what it is. <laughs> um... So I'll say two things before I just kind of like launch into it. But Matthew Rees is very good in this. Mm -hmm. He is. He's very, very good in this. I think he, but I also knew Matthew Rees was a good actor because I watched some of The Americans, another show that he's very good in that I don't like. Um, And so I did not need to know that he was very good. I already knew that. Um, and then the, the art design, the costuming work, all of that is really, really good as well. I think it's great. Um, it looks really like lush in terms of that sense of things. Um, this first episode is just garbage. (laughs) (laughs) That's being a little harsh. It's not garbage. garbage. It's not garbage. It's it's really well made. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, from the prestige cable of it all um of hey we can get away with things um like how badly do you want to see a dead baby kate how badly do you want to see a dead baby really close up with his Mm -hmm. eyes sewn open huh how badly we can show that to you because we're on hbo um and then just i mean it's a good gag watching matthew reese get fucked so hard he falls off a twin bed it's good it's a very good gag but it just feels really weird Mm -hmm. within the context of this larger episode um but it's it's a good gag but yeah it's just nothing in this really grabbed me um and so while i'm probably gonna watch a couple more um just to see if i can get a sense of things i just i just i don't I don't, I don't, I don't feel tapped into this. And I love noir. Like, this is not a genre issue here. And noir as a genre is an issue that is for another podcast. Um, but I love noir storytelling. I love detective stories, especially in this vein. This did not hit any of that for me, really. And that was very, very frustrating for me. Um, in no small part, because I don't think Perry Mason is particularly, falls too much into that slob anti-hero thing. And that's really boring. And even Matthew Rees can't really elevate that as hard as he tries here. So that's how I'm feeling about it. We can dig into like some other stuff if you want. Um, how did you feel about this? Um, how Remind me and listeners how you were feeling about this as 
a concept. I don't have any particularly strong connections to Perry Mason, the property, as like a book series or as the the TV show, um, other than like a vague awareness and familiarity, right, with it and getting... So Perry Mason's whole thing is that he gets... He takes on these impossible cases if he believes in the person who's been accused as a defense attorney. And then goes through the trial and manages to get the the guilty person up on the stand somehow and maneuver them into confessing on the stand. So, like, that's his shtick. Like, there are other tweaks to it. There's other things that are, you know, specific to it. But that is, like, a classic Perry Mason thing, right? Yes. So there's this belief in the underdog, in uh, there's there's threads of uh, police corruption and, and falsifying and um, manufacturing uh uh, testimony and um, confessions and that kind of a thing. Like, there's a very strong pulling for the underdog kind of thing. So this notion of, um, I mean, and I love a noir, and I love the Americans, and Matthew Reese is great, big fan, super on board for, like, like period costuming, very here for it. The notion of a 30s and Depression-era detective story, very here for it. Especially, yes. you know... Depending on what happens, but uh, we're at levels of unemployment previously only seen during the Depression. There's concerns that there will be a massive, long-standing economic depression in our immediate future in the United States. Um, so, like, I think there is some thematic resonance <laughs> that could be very interesting right now. So I was very on board for this. And the notion of Perry Mason having a, a level of background as a detective, I think, makes sense for the yes. little we know about the character. Um, we don't know. And on the show and in the books, you find out very, very little about his backstory. So there's a lot of space here for them to get creative and have it still fit with everything else. So the notion of him as a kind of uh, a, a noir detective... Um, that then, uh, ended, you know, during the depression that ended up, you know, we know, also know he's a veteran who ended up becoming this defense attorney who's always fighting for the little guy. I think there's themes and like threads there that make a lot of sense. I was very excited for this. Um, and then, uh, I saw the premiere and my takeaway, I have a couple takeaways. The main one is that. It seems to me if you're, you know, I mentioned this on Streaming in Place, so I don't remember if I made the edit. It seems to me if you're making a prequel um, property and in order for the for the story to be interesting, the person who's watching it needs to have seen the thing it's a prequel of. So, like, in this case, for example, if, if the only way that this main character is interesting is if you know that he will later go on to become a defense attorney who always fights indefatigably for the little guy if that if you need to know that for the character to work and be interesting you have failed and that is was a big takeaway for me because i don't find this character specific enough or interesting enough um on his own in this episode i knowing that he will completely change his philosophy of life and um you know that it's worth putting his neck out there for other people and this like knowing that that he's going to go from where we see him here to where we later find no he will be that that makes him more interesting that makes the show more interesting the concept of maybe this is the case that starts him on that path very interesting but it should it shouldn't be relying on that it shouldn't need that so that was one of my takeaways and the other takeaway is that it is it is trying so hard. It, it really wants you to, like, see 
It's like, look, we're going to be really grimy. Look, we're going to be really good. Yeah, we're not only going to see a dead baby, we're going to make sure its eyes are stitched open. Because it's not enough for them to kill a dead baby. They also have to, for them to kill a baby. They also have to, like, for some reason, have stitched its eyelids open and make sure that you see it. Not just once, but a couple times. Yes. And it's not enough to have the Perry Mason following a um, celebrity, or like a, a comedic actor... To get a fatty arbuckle type, a, a fatty yeah. arbuckle type, the, to get pics of pictures of him um, having crazy sex. In I don't know if it was with a sex worker or not, but no, it was with another actor on this from the same studio. From the same studio. Oh yeah, that's right, because of the blackmail. Yeah. Yes. Um. So it's not enough to, to for that. We have to then also just linger in that sex scene for way longer than is necessary because either let's let's delight in it or let's shame and laugh at these people who have specific fetishes. Right. And like, there's no need for it other than to say, look at us. We're, we're being seedy or we're being uh, extravagant or we're really going to push the buttons. Like it doesn't, I didn't feel like it was in service of a narrative. I didn't feel like it was in service of a tone. Um, and so because we can isn't a good enough answer, I think. Um, yeah, but that is also HBO's, like, development philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was directed by Tim Van Patten, right? Um, of uh, Who I'm familiar with his work more from uh, Boardwalk Empire. And there yes. are elements of that that I could, I could feel those threads. And the parts of Boardwalk Empire that really worked for me were the parts that were very, the measured character studies, the the really specific and thoughtful detail about um, these characters' lives and how they were connected and, like, the decisions they were making. And uh, then there also was just, like, an enjoyment of the time period and, like, how very detailed and crafted, right? There's this feeling of craft to Boardwalk Empire. And in parts of this this episode this premiere you definitely get that and i could really enjoy like everybody's in the hats and like i was like uh, i was like perry mason looks way too good and then they get cl- they change the angle i'm like oh actually no his coat looks like crap it was just the other angle that made it look amazing um so like there's there's fun with that stuff and i can appreciate all the noir tropes and all the like the way that it's, that it's engaging with all of that but i don't feel like there is enough uh specificity. I don't feel like there's enough awareness. I feel like I should spoil the audience mildly, no, no plot or anything, and just say apparently um, Reese and Mislani have like almost no scenes together for the whole season. They have just a couple. Yeah. That's that's rough. Yeah. There, Mislani plays a character who is seen in a picture but not, and, and figures into the first episode but is not introduced in the first episode. I was very surprised when I found out that that they only have a couple scenes together and that they're all of their storylines are not in this, like featuring the same characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, but why would you, but why would you do that? Why, why are we following other characters besides our hard boiled detective? This is a hard boiled detective story. I'm so confused. Um, so while I will undoubtedly keep watching, there's not a lot of shows on right now. I do love a noir. I was really disheartened by this premiere. I wanted it to be so much better than it was. And um, there, I the whole cast is great. Shea Wiggum, awesome. Um, like, just everybody, everybody who pops up is very good, and I enjoy them. So I'm excited to see some of that. Um, I like the, um, the the rapport with the the head cop, who's just, again, these are all 
actors you've seen in a million other things. Um, I like that, that it takes its time in some of these scenes, but why did we need to make uh, Perry Mason some level of a deadbeat dad who doesn't see his kid on the holidays and uh, is behind on his support payments? I mean, I know it's the Depression, but still. Um, and <laughs> and like, he refuses to sell the, his family land. And, yeah. yeah. Like, what does it... If you're going to invent a son character... Why are you? Why and it, how does this make him more interesting? Because I don't think it makes him more interesting. I think it just underscores. If you can't tell, he's a fuck up. He has dark. You know, he's he's dealing with PTSD from the war. He's deal. He's got issues, man. And yeah. it's just it's just not interesting. So I'm hoping it will improve. Um, it sounds like you might be done, which I would completely understand. No, like I said, I'll watch a couple more. I mean, I think everything you've said is correct. Like, for me, the lack of specificity is really the biggest issue with the show, especially in regards to Mason as a character. Um, we get little bits, but making him a slob is fine. Um, for me, for the most part, like, that doesn't bother me, but it's just the general sort of... He just feels really generic otherwise, which is a not like it's a very weird state to be in with a noir, um, considering that as a production mode and as a detective thing, the detective in and of itself has traits, but they're never like fully fleshed or defined. And I think that's one of the problems with doing this and wanting to make Mason complicated because i don't want to say complex because he's not complex mm-hmm. um like the entire concept of oh he's really sad that he can't see his kid well he's gonna avenge this dead baby by finding out who killed who killed the who killed the baby is too much of a through line and too trite of a through line mm-hmm. um and it also for me as sort of like a noir person and for as a detective story person Hard-boiled detectives tend to, at least within, like, the Hammond and Chandler tradition, do what is right because it's right, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that society has pushed them aside for whatever reason. And um, society doesn't care. And society doesn't care is the other but thing. But they do. Like, and that's why, they're, that's why they aren't thriving, because right, they exactly. do still care, right? And this right, is not be- that. <laughs> right. Because, like, one of the things about, like, detective fiction in this vain as well as like the noir in general and this is something that came up early this month late last month of when we were having discussions about police procedurals and what we can look for for a procedural that doesn't deal with the cops and it's just like yeah no noirs and detectives because there's no bigger fuck you to the police than a noir storyline because the cops are always depicted as being horrible mm-hmm. and useless um and corrupt um, they're without fail, just the worst, along with the criminals. Um, but here, everyone's bad because that's cable TV. Everyone's bad. That's premium cable TV, especially everyone's bad in this kind of a thing. So it's just, it just, it feels very much caught up in its both like broadcast, broadcast availability trappings of being on HBO and then being a prestige television drama combined together and all that stuff that's just really boring at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so 
we'll see what happens. I know friend of the show, Alison Shoemaker, is way more positive on the show than we are. Yes. <laughs> she likes it um, and disagrees with, with where we're at. So hopefully I'll get around to where she is and the show will win me over. I always am rooting for shows to win me over. But, um, yeah, I'm certainly... It was one of those, like, oh, this is going to be a televised conversation of, well, you were right, Noel. <laughs> yep. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so we'll see where we're at next week. Uh, our next show is Full Frontal with Samantha B, which had an episode uh, about uh, this week about a couple of topics, but the main ones were uh, uh, support for black trans women and how they are targeted um, by hate crimes and violence and uh, disproportionately not protected um, by basically our culture and society and systems. Um, and then also they did a, a fun segment on um, training in uh, with Olympic athletes for quarantine. Um, so I thought that I thought that the episode was was pretty strong. I've been enjoying Full Frontal. I just haven't had much to say. So um, yeah, I thought it was a good segment on on black trans women, and I thought it was a fun comedic aside to have uh, our bit with the uh, athletes. So where where are we at with this episode? Yeah, the uh, black trans women segments I think really really solid, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so that was that was good, I thought, and I appreciate that the show consistently finding not finding actively creating space to do these kinds of stories, um, which sets it apart from its other late night programming um, competitors because other show, other the Jimmy's and the Stevens and the sets can acknowledge it sometimes, but for the most part, they're not like devoting time to it. Even like Trevor Noah to a certain extent doesn't really engage with it to this degree that I think Full Frontal consistently does. And then to follow it up with having her correspondence and writing staff um, have Zoom conversations with um, Olympiads um, about the fact that they don't get to go to the Olympics this year. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just great. Like, it's really funny. Um, Like, the synchronized swimming bit um, and the footage of them working together over Zoom to practice I thought was really great. But I tell you, Kate, my favorite one was with the, uh, I can't remember his name, the mostly bald uh, white gentleman who's been with the show since the start. Mm-hmm. And his daughter looming over him. It <laughs> <laughs> was awesome. It was so good. It was so very good. I really, really enjoyed it. And then watching them, watching them wrestle and him just try to escape because she actually knows what she's doing, I guess. <laughs> Um, was also really, really great. So I enjoyed that segment. It was like a big kind of fun thing that I got to enjoy in the middle of this week. So I really appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, I always enjoy uh, when they let their correspondents, you know, get a segment like that. And having them each interact with a different Olympian was a good way to do it. So yeah, it was yeah. fun. Um, over on YouTube, we had Jelly's Marble Runs kick off the Marble League 2020. <laughs> Can't uh, believe we're discussing this, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So both of us had done our research beforehand, and I still haven't settled on a team. Um, did you not settle on the Green Ducks? No, I did not settle on the Green Ducks. Um, okay. Currently, I guess I'm going for the Arrangers just because I, I love a pun. And yeah. this isn't a pun, but, like, it's close enough. Um it's wordplay and but but i know you you have decided you definitely have your rooting interests settled so who are you rooting for 
So I'm rooting for like I picked I picked two teams because I I'm a coward. <laughs> um, so I picked uh, the Hazers, who have been a team historically within the Marble League, have done well. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very solid. Um, but then I wanted like an underdog to kind of root for, so I picked I chose the Minty Maniacs because they haven't actually been in the Marble League for an extended period of time. And so I picked both of them, but I also just, I like the Hazers is like, and the Minty Maniacs is like colors of marbles, <laughs> um, which is a big thing, I think, and important when you're picking these things out, because you want a marble that you can really pick out in a crowded field, which is why the Arrangers, I think, are a great pick, because there's very little overlap in their color scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're perfect, I think, for that. And it turns out I picked fairly well in one of these instances this year so far. <laughs> um, so, listeners, the first event was balancing, which is um, four marble four marbles are released in a line, basically, along a like I don't know, maybe an inch wide, half inch yeah, wide, kind of like shoot. Um, yeah. platform that is about a hundred and thirty is one hundred and twenty. Uh, inches long and they just have to go all the way to the end if they get all the way to the end they get 130 points any place they fall off based on their measurement um, is the amount of points that they get and balancing is not my favorite event because I've watched a lot of the Marble League to prep (laughs) for this I've watched a lot but it's still fun it's still very silly had you watched much in preparation for this or did you just dive in i watched some i've seen okay. I'm, I'm familiar with some of the different events for example okay. the ones where they have to stay in the funnels the longest the funnel run is by far and away one of my favorite events because it, it's it really can it really can turn mm. um and then but i've seen some of the others as well like the, some of the ones for speed uh, i appreciate any of the ones that have the little lift thing those yep. are always fun. Um, so I've seen some, but I I did not allow myself to get fully YouTube spiraled into it. Uh, enough to mess up my algorithm, but not enough to dominate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel like, for the listeners who don't know, um, the hazers are like a smoky gray, right? Yes. Hazers are smoky gray. They're, they're more opaque than translucent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and the then, maniacs are green, like a mint green with yeah, a light greenish, a little bit of blue, yeah, yeah, or with a black or brown like line swirl going through them. Yeah, um, the O Rangers are orange because yes, it's O apostrophe range with an R at the end. That's yeah. why they're the O Rangers. Um, so uh, yeah, I was expecting to watch this uh, first. I guess heat the first episode, and come away with a strong team I was rooting for. And, like, uh, there are certain ones that I, on the basis of their name, would be a fan of, but those are the ones that I didn't like the look of the marbles. Mm-hmm. So that's how I'm at Arrangers for now. But I reserve the right to, to be a Fairweather fan and change. I don't remember how they did, <laughs> but... Uh, the Arrangers came in 10th in this. So, um, not great. So not, not, not great, but they still, they still got points. Yeah. Which is good. Um, there's still plenty of time to turn this around yeah for them um, but yes i thought it was a solid first episode and uh, uh, i liked the opening ceremonies i liked that they were fun but didn't take too long there were some yeah. good uh maneuvers that we saw the marbles go through and i th- feel like we should continue to approach this marble league um completely straight-facedly because it's absolutely ridiculous 
<laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, listeners, I really encourage you, if you have not checked this out, to go and look up uh, Jelly's Marbles run on YouTube. It's J-E-L-L-E. Um, and, like, a, they have commentary. They create storylines for teams. Like, um, one of the teams that's actually in the Marble League competition, the Oceanix, did really, really poorly last year. So poorly that towards the end of the Marble League 2019, they fired their coach. <laughs> Which is just the best thing. So, like, it's very easy to get caught up, I think, in this as, like, a thing. Like, it's just like, oh, it's just marbles. And then you're just like, Hazers, don't you disappoint me? Why are you disappointing me? Because, <laughs> um, like, the commentary all, like, anthropomorphizes these marbles as if they have a strategy for any of the things that they're doing when it's just physics. <laughs> um, but it's it's still very good. I, again, I've watched too much of this, but I really enjoyed it. I found it really soothing. Um, so it's good. I encourage people to watch it and get involved because it's a lot of fun. And you know you know what's not going to happen to to the Hazers or the Minty Maniacs or the Arrangers? They're not going to have 15 more of them come uh, test positive for COVID. Right, so, no, exactly. This is, these are the sports we should be watching. Marbles aren't going to get the COVID. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, next up is Crazy Delicious, which is a reality competition show. It's a cooking show that has three new contestants each episode who uh, need to make... Uh, the first dish is... The first round is a dish that um, inventively features a particular ingredient. And then there are two other rounds that I couldn't remember what the rules were other than the second round whoever wins the first round gets an extra 10 minutes in the second round and then someone gets eliminated at the end of the second round if you win you get the golden apple and the whole theme of of the of the show is like a magical world of cooking so the entire set is edible um and the um the the three judges are the the cooking gods who live who are up in like a balcony kind of thing but you know it's like you go up a tree kind of a thing to get to them and they're all in white you know and they they have a lot of fun with that the show has a lot of fun with that and they come down one at a time to walk around and talk to the people and then the the contestants bring their food up to the gods for judgment and then at the end the last round the the gods come down to them and just decide who will be bestowed the golden apple so it's silly and fun um but it it's just boring it's just not very good um i carla from top chef uh, and the, the chew and many things is one of the gods uh one of the judges here the other two judges i've seen in other things before they're like um like i think isn't the barbecue guy the cooking guy um it wasn't he on uh, ugly ugly delicious season two i think their episode about steak he was featured i could be wrong so I've seen I've seen all the judges uh, before and other things, and they know what they're doing. But the whole like premise of the show is that the set is edible, and then they do nothing with that. So they have to go and forage for their food. But it's very clearly all been like they've sent in what ingredients they need, and they then then the people who work on the show have found a way to incorporate that into the set so they can have the ex- exact ingredients that they have previously requested, you know? So there isn't any limitation based on that. You don't see them, like, tearing off a chunk of wall because so, they need some more sugar in their dish or anything. It's just a regular cooking show with a wacky set. And because they have new contestants each episode, you don't even get invested in the competitors or anything. It's just... 
I was hoping for more. The the other Netflix cooking shows I've seen have all been more interesting than this. Yeah, Crazy Delicious is kind of deathly boring um, for me. Mainly because it squanders its whole premise, like you were saying. Like, the whole fact that this set and that they're cooking in has everything that they could want in terms of, like, ingredients and everything is never utilized in any way, shape, or form. At the beginning of each round, the host, uh, British comedian Jade Adams, and we should know that this is also Channel 4 production Mm -hmm. um, over in the UK, um, tells them to go forage. So they go and grab whatever, like, main sort of ingredient they're going to use that isn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) animal-based. Because if you're cooking with meat, that's that's somewhere off-screen. Yeah, that's, um, there's, there is a fridge. <laughs> there is a fridge. Um, because you don't have to slaughter your own animal from this whimsical forest. And there's no time limit on the foraging either, so... No, but it's it's implied. Like, they, they're given, like, two hours. Like, in I watched the second episode, and they had, like, two hours to do the mushroom cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, which was their main ingredient in the first challenge. And I was just like, that is a lot of time. I get it, because mushrooms sometimes, depending on which one you take, need a lot of time. However, mm-hmm. that is a lot of time. And ultimately, I think I wasn't particularly bowled over by the dishes I saw in the first two episodes that I watched. Like, it was reinvent the pizza for the second one. The second one is often about reinventing something. Yeah. And the person just... Gave them a pizza with figs and some other different flavor profiles. And I just went, that's that's that, just a that's, pizza. That's just a pizza. It's I not mean, less of a pizza because you beautifully sang Monteverdi while they made it. Exactly. It's still it. a pizza. It just had musical accompaniment. You didn't do anything different to that pizza. Yeah. Um, you sang it fine, I'm assuming. I don't know. It sounded nice. Um, but I was just like, there's nothing here. Um, so, I mean, Carla looks amazing, mm-hmm. but... I love the, 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 her hair, the updo with, like, the, like, little beads or whatever. Yeah. The pearls. No. Yeah. Carla Hall looks amazing in this, and the other two judges are, um, Heston Blumenthal and Nicholas, um, I'm gonna butcher his last name, um, Ekstedt. Mm-hmm. He's, um, a, um, whatchamacallit, uh, Swedish chef. But this is six episodes. This is really not worth your time, unless you're just really super bored, I feel like. Um, Just watch Sugar Rush again. It's better. Yeah. And don't watch the Food Network knockoff of Sugar Rush with the Cake Boss because it's awesome. Sugar Rush is better. Sugar Rush is better. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Go watch Zumbos. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, this very much feels like Channel 4 and Netflix went, well, what if we do Zumbos but in a forest? And the answer is that's just really boring. It's not Zumbos. Don't watch this. Watch Zumbos again or Sugar Rush and you'll be much happier. Yeah. Uh, or you could also go check out Flora's Lava because I am, listeners, I am much more on board with this show than Noel is, uh, at least it was the previous episode. Um, it has design flaws, significant design flaws. It would be more, much more interesting if you got to see um, teams come back and compete through. Like, So there are five rooms and there's ten episodes. So each room is featured two episodes. They have a first level and a second level. So things the second time you see the room, they've like taken some things out. They've added some tricks, right, to make it a little more interesting. Um, but they don't bring back any teams. 
And it would be much more interesting to see some of the same teams have to work through multiple rooms and see them, watch them, like, learn as they go um, how to navigate the rooms. And, and, you know, that would be really neat. Uh, They don't do that. And it would be... um, like there's a, some there's a lack of rhyme and reason to when there are two people on a team and when there are three and when there are two teams competing and when there are three teams competing cuz sometimes it, it really feels like oh somebody pulled out so we're just going to stretch these two um but it is very silly and it is only a half an hour which is important and i had a stupid amount of fun half watching this and so i am very on board so i know you watched more of this Noel. yes um did clearly it was addictive enough that you watched the rest uh was your opinion shaped by like the second floor the second level of these returning rooms yeah a little bit i think that the, I, I like the second half a bit more um than the first half for a couple of reasons i think that one of the big differences especially in the second half is runtime in the second half a lot of the episodes are actually under half an hour whereas in the first half the episodes range from half an hour to almost like 37 minutes mm-hmm. and those those episodes in the first half just felt immeasurably long Um, whereas in the second half, everything feels a lot zippier, even if they do have three teams in an episode. And I, even that difference of five minutes seemed to make a big difference in my ability to fully enjoy the episode. So it was just something weird about me and my sense of pacing within an episode that the second half, I think, does a better job in terms of editing everything together. Um, I do agree with you that it's really weird that they just kind of go all right, we're going to do two teams this time. And I can only assume that it happens because the first team just immediately just dies. Mm-hmm. The One of the other teams just immediately died and the producers went, we don't have an episode because they all fell in the lava immediately. Um, so I don't, I, uh, yeah. The other thing I liked more about the second half is that it's the little tweaks that they make of like, making it a little bit harder by either putting in booby traps or taking by away the painting. <laughs> taking away something that was clearly too much of an too, made the room a little too easy until you got to that fucking pyramid um <laughs> listeners the just just ba- watch you'll know what we just mean. watch you'll you'll understand but don't go to the pyramid just don't, don't. The pyramid. don't the go to the trap. pyramid pyramid is a trap um are you a pyramid you have to tell me <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's, that's where I ended up. I ended up like, my opinion has shifted a little bit. Like it would go up like a point grade sort of deal of like from a minus to a non minus, but probably not a plus. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that this is good. It's perfectly good for like families too. Yeah. This is a great show to just to put your kids in front of, I think, because I don't think there's really any language issues. There's a lot of like stereotyping. Um, but that's most reality competition shows. Um, did you know that these three guys from Boston, you wouldn't know from hearing them talk and say anything. They'd mentioned Tom Brady. They mentioned Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> it's just really excessive, but it's still, it still has that air of fun and type of thing. So 
I'm I feel bad being as harsh on it, but I'd still rather watch Holy Moly. <laughs> <laughs> What's fun about it for the family viewing, like you say, is there there is plenty of opportunity, especially when the rooms come back the second time, to go like, why are you you gotta go over to like, oh, come on, you've been on that bed way too long. You're gonna get dizzy. Yeah. Like you can back backseat quarterback a little bit. Yes. And uh, and that can be super fun when you're watching with other people. So there's some element of that. I, I certainly I if it gets a season two, I will tune in because I look forward to um, the way that the show is hopefully going to reinvent itself after the first season, seeing some of the reaction to it. And, yeah. you know, I it's creative and there's some fun there. So I look forward to seeing what they will do next. Yeah. And they'd have to do whole new rooms for the second season because otherwise people know not to go in the pyramid. <laughs> yeah. Or the chairs. Don't do the stools. They're going to spin. It's not, not worth it. It's not. Just, just do the monkey Right, Ride the cheese. Ride, ride the, the cheese, cheese. Definitely. Um, next up is RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars and their third episode, Get a Room. And in this episode, the queens have to design a hotel suite because that's a thing that drag queens have to... It's not. It's very stupid. This challenge is stupid. Um, the I don't agree with the results. I didn't think the lip sync was all that interesting. Um, it was... Actually, the lip sync was downright disappointing because lip sync assassin Jujubee did not know her words. Um, and just, like, I, I thought Blair should have won instead of Jujubee. I, I, I had some problems with this episode. And the 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 gaggery of having Shay in the bottom is there very intentionally and specifically for drama. But they are lucky that she did not get voted out because if she had gotten voted out, the season would be in some real trouble um, because the queens have not been stepping up their game. There's plenty of social game aspects to dive into this season, but they need to deliver in the maxi challenges or why are we watching it? They have not shown us this season, except for Shay in the previous episode with that look. They have not shown us why they are all-stars, and if they don't do that, then it's very easy to get disenchanted. So um, I can happily report that the next episode is better, but uh, Get a Room was just, it was disappointing. What did you think? I think it's really boring. Like, it's... I, I I just really struggled to get involved in this episode. Um, and I think your B- minus is kind of generous mm-hmm. um, over at um, TV Club. Um, so, yeah, it's just... I just couldn't get into it. I tried real hard. Um, and I agree with you that, like, I, Blair should have won. I understand why they gave it to Jujube because of how present Jujube was in the in the actual like tour that they did Mm -hmm. and if all they see is sort of like the edited the edit presentation that we get i get it i totally get it however (laughs) i didn't particularly like the room um i didn't like any of the rooms quite frankly i think they're all kind of bad and like the golden girls is a great idea but it ended up being really generic i don't even care about the lack of jokes it was just a really generic kind of room um the jungle room was not the best either for a variety of reasons and the gold room i thought was really good but it was also really weird that they just sidestepped doing any trump references and it's just like they're right there they're right there you've got the other team doing way too many golden shower references and you're not doing anything Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, what is happening here? What is happening? Um, but yes, Blair should have won. Um, mainly for me, a lot of it is the fact that the runway looks were 
really, really muddled for me in a lot of different ways, which is the other reason why Blair should have won, because Blair did the brief yeah, um, by doing three very distinct looks that all kind of flowed into one another, which is more than I can say for a number of other people that did their like three in one type of looks like taking off a jacket. It's not is, a look is not is does not give you a new look. It just means that you took off a jacket. Mm-hmm. That is not the thing here. Well, at least Mariah's jacket she took off was a distinct look from the other one. Yes. but like Mayhem, it was the same look, same color yeah. scheme, same like everything. Yeah, no, it is. Um, Alexis's I liked sort of, but then it just kind of got really muddled. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, um, I really liked India's looks and everything, and I don't even really mind that they were all like the same fabric because they were sort of distinct enough. Um, but it was also just like, what are we doing here exactly? Um, Jujubee's like holiday cycle I thought was clever and fun, so mm-hmm. I was okay with that. They did. Um, they didn't look good, but they didn't at least look it's good, an idea. It's a good idea, which leads us to Shay, mm-hmm. who. When Shay came out, my partner and I both just went, leave something for the other queens to win. Uh Because we both really, really liked all of Shay's Lisa Frank on acid stuff. Like, we really enjoyed it. It is, as you say in your recap, a very big swing that Shay took. Like, a huge, huge swing. We both really, really liked it and thought it was very ridiculous for them to hate it as much as they apparently did. Um, Maybe it just doesn't look as good in person as it does on TV. It probably doesn't. But it was very, it was very distressing for both of us. Um, So it was just a weird, not, it was, it was just a very weird episode for us and for so it was just like, yeah, we're happy Jujubee won because we like Jujubee, but meh. But yeah, and also your point regarding if you eliminate Shay, that just just totally ruins the show. So yeah. don't do that because no one else is like doing any, no one else is taking swings is the thing. Like mm-hmm. that I think needs to be acknowledged is that Shay's taking a really big, took a really big swing by this and no one else is doing this. No one else is doing an all-star thing here. And Shay, regardless of whether or not you think it works, is doing all-star stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's an excellent point. And the only, she's in the bottom because the Golden Girls room was not good. Yeah. And because Cracker got a couple more jokes than she did. And because if Cracker was in the bottom, then she would be eliminated. And if Shay's in the bottom, that gives... She probably won't be eliminated, and that's going to give plenty of drama for the show. Like, that's why she's in the bottom. That's why they're so harsh on her look. Um, So, yeah, it's just... I, I know that it's all coordinated and very specifically scripted. So that, like, who gets eliminated, who's up for, you know, all that... That's very specifically chosen by the producers in order to make a good show. That's the number one goal. Not to award the best queen, but to make the best show. That's their priority. But if there is no rhyme nor reason to who wins and who gets eliminated, that does not make a satisfying show. And they are doing too much goopery 
currently, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And the queens aren't delivering as they need to on the runway. Also, this challenge was dumb. It was a dumb challenge. So mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not too hard on the queens for not yeah. doing a better job. Um, but like, if you're not going to blow our minds in the runways, and if you're not going to blow our minds in the, in the challenges, and if all the backstage drama feels too manufactured by the producers... Why are we watching? So, I, I, like I said, I, I'm glad to say that the improv challenge episode is better, though I also disagree with who won. <laughs> the different person should have won. We'll talk about it next week. Um, what did you think of the lip sync? I thought that it was okay, but I've seen one maybe better. Yeah, no, it was definitely okay, and I agree with you that um, Jujubee didn't know the words. Yeah. Um, and that, Jujubee that... clearly didn't think she would be in the top. Yeah. That she was going to um, win. So I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty solidly in a like that was not great sort of mode there, yeah. Yep. So um, anyways, hopefully we like next episode better. Let's go over to Adventure Time Distant Lands BMO. So this is a, a like an like an hour long, forty five minute long movie on HBO Max featuring BMO. I know nothing about it. I haven't had a chance to watch it. Um, and Noel, you say it's good. It's real good. Um, I need to acknowledge the fact that, like, a degree of lack of objectivity in that I love BMO. BMO is one of my favorite Adventure Time characters. Um, So a whole episode devoted to BMO was always going to be my jam. I love the BMO noir episodes a lot. Um, And this episode is really, really great. Um, I can't... I don't want to tell you anything about it because I want you to just go in as blind as possible Um, because it's just a whirly gig of a 45 minute adventure time episode. Um, So I just want to say that it's really, really good. I want to say that you get to hear Randall Park, Mm -hmm. uh, which is always a delight. Um, and that there's a lot of really interesting things in the episode. Um, it is not a subtle episode about what it is ultimately about. So I mm-hmm. want that to be really clear from the start. Um, even if it takes a cup, even if it doesn't really snap into focus until the very end in terms of what this is actually about. Um, but it's a really beautiful episode. It's really, really good. It's got plenty of great action and comedy um so it's really it's really really good and i cannot wait for you to watch it so that we can discuss it because it's so good okay well yeah more on that next week we had a new episode of star girl the justice society and i thought this was cute i like this one um i I like the pacing and the that we get a bit of a reality check um from pat here and that court uh, listens to him i thought it was this was a good raising of the stakes for the villains and for the heroes by proxy, right? But also lowering back, like, taking Courtney and some of these characters back down to the ground a little bit. And going, like, this is ridiculous. You're high schoolers. You should not be trying to physically fight people who've been supervillains their entire life. Um, so what, what did you think of the Justice Society? Yeah, I think it's a good... It's a good episode. And I can't believe that we're six episodes into this season right? already. Like, yeah. it's just blowing by real fast and this is not a complaint because i think that the show has been paced really well so far i'm a little worried we're gonna hit a slowdown Mm -hmm. so i don't want that to happen um 
but there's just so much like fun in this episode of like Co- Courtney's whole montage of trying to get the JSA stuff back mm-hmm. is really good. Um, especially her just sad walk away from Beth, who's just so delighted to have a friend, um, is just really, really sweet and really, really great. Um, so I think there's a lot of like really good sort of non costume adjacent stuff, and then their whole we can do this, we can do this mission thing, and it's like you sweet babies. Courtney's literally the only one that apparently has some sort of innate ability for this. Mm-hmm. Um, even though Yolanda definitely holds her own against um, Tigress um, pretty well, actually, considering um, everything. But the entirety of the arc of like giving us Tigress and Sportsmaster here and also just really, really hamming up the ridiculousness of Sportsmaster... Mm-hmm. Which is the correct choice to make? Yeah. Um, his name is Sportsmaster. His he name hits is Sportsmaster. Baseballs and baseballs and like uh, like hockey pucks at people. Yeah, you got real go hard, real hard, real hard. Um, <laughs> like enough to send them flying and flipping over like that hard. Um, so it's all very silly, but it's all very fun, and it does like put everyone down a peg, but it also gives Courtney a perspective, which is really delightfully rendered in that last scene with her and Pat. Um, So I think all of this works. One scene does not work for me, Kate. And I want your take on this. Because we've talked a lot about Mike. Mm -hmm. The young, the young Pat's son, who does not feel like his son in any way, shape, or form. And Kate, I do not believe that there's any amount of chocolate volcano on Earth that is going to get that child to sit down and watch a black and white movie. There's just not. <laughs> so when he's um, sitting there with Amy Smart and they're just talking and they have a black and white movie on, I refuse to accept that because there's no way that kid would do that. I'm also not sure he makes a functioning volcano. So I I, I buy him making the the look of it, the concept. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I buy it working. But um, but I, I thought that the science fair scenes were nice. I liked that they gave Amy Smart uh, something to do, even if it's something small. And yeah, no, he wouldn't watch a black and white movie. But maybe there's a personal connection to that movie we don't know. That's There's the only not. way. This kid has that's no the only depth. way I could buy it. Well, yeah, no, he has no depth. But that's the only way I could I could buy it. Um, so I because he does strike me as the kind of character who could and the kind of kid who could decide they're a fan of like an actor, right? And then like watch everything that actor's ever done. Be like, yeah, Groucho Marx is amazing. And just, like, watch all the Groucho Marx movies. Like, he strikes me as that kind of compulsive personality. But um, but without that kind of a background for it, mm, so definitely. Yeah. I, I'm, we're, we're on the same page there. Um, are we on the same page on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and a trout in the milk? Which is, don't you dare send our boy Enver anywhere else. We need to watch him play with smartphones more because it's hilarious and delightful. Um, wh- how did you feel about this episode? legitimately kate i kid you not the best thing i think steve jobs has ever done is give us smartphones that so time travel stories can give people shock and awe about smartphones yeah (laughs) but very but i then i need a subcategory of just enver being shocked and awe about smartphones (laughs) because it's so good and pure um Yes, I think this episode's 
good. I think it's the when we were ta- kind of talking about justice society with Stargirl being the correct amount of escalation and then like perspective force in terms of what you can and cannot do. I think tr- a trout in the milk does the same thing here really nicely um, in terms of layering in a number of other problems from the Chromacons being more proactive to keeping Malik alive for a little bit longer, which messes up the timeline a little bit, to whatever is going on with Gemma. Mm-hmm. And that whole bag of that I desperately need explained. Um, and the rest of that. So I think that there's a lot of like really good and interesting things, I think, happening here. And I'm very much here for it. And I think it's a very good episode. Um but I'm also now very worried about Daisy and Enver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm worried about them now. Yeah, I like how it's Enver. It's not. It's not Daniel Souza. It's Enver. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I'm worried about that good sweet boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. The stuff with May has been good. I think so far with the. I don't. I don't like the picking up a contact eye of, of drunk. I thought that was a bit too much. Yes, that doesn't really work for me either. Yeah, but yeah. But the rest, fun. And uh, we'll see what happens. The opening credit sequence, I just it was so good. I loved it so much. I just had a stupid smile on my face. I was like, are we really going to do this every week? I am so here for it. Me too. It was so good. Uh, well, Noel, what was your week in TV? Um, so, I mean, it's pretty clearly uh, Perry Mason. I think just really knocked it out. No, it was Adventure Time. It was Distant Lands with BMO. That won my week in TV. What about you? Uh, I guess I have to give it to S.H.I.E.L.D. I wasn't bowled over by most of this. Um, but I'm not going to give it to Flora's Lava. Not so. Legendary? Oh, well, Legendary was really good. Yeah, it's true. I didn't think of that. That one could be, that could contend. But no, I guess I'll give it to S.H.I.E.L.D. for this episode. Even though I like the previous S.H.I.E.L.D. way better. But yes. yeah, that's all I'll do for this week. Now we'll take a break, listen to a trailer for Top Boy Season 2, and be right back after this. That was the trailer for season two of Top Boy or Top Boy Summerhouse on Netflix. Last week we talked about season one. This week we're talking about season two. And uh, I'm going to kick it right off the bat, uh, kick off the conversation by saying, you asked uh, last week if I noticed the lack of a police presence in season <laughs> one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then we start season two with a mega police uh, presence. It, it, like, if you weren't sure, right? It was, it was such a night and day switch. Um, I think there's a lot about... I was really struck. Um, I didn't realize in season one that the show thought that we were supposed to be following the two adult characters as the main characters. Because for me, they really weren't. Rinella was the main character. And then we get to season two, and that becomes more clear. And I'm like, oh, but I don't I don't care about them. Because they're, they're not interesting, and they're terrible people. Um... And the fact that they care about each other doesn't change the fact that I don't that they're both terrible. Um, 
and I don't care why they're terrible. So it left me in an interesting place for season two. I was still compelled by it. I still think it's it's well made, and um, I think there's stuff in there that is interesting and nuanced and gripping. But I like season one quite a bit more than season two. I think. I agree. Um, I I'm I'm going to be curious to see hear what you found particularly compelling and gripping about series two, since I found this to be really flat and generic. Mm-hmm. Um, from like at the very beginning of the action that propels this largely is the police finding Kamali's body and everything spirals out from that point. Um, in addition to the fact that um, Duchesne is now a rival with Sully who's trying to kind of claw up through uh, the Summer House Estate area. Um, and is not doing particularly well. Sully's not doing particularly well while Duchesne is doing well enough mm-hmm. that he's more or less in charge now. Um, and none of this really like resonates in me. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think you hit the nail on the head really immediately in that in season one, Duchesne and Sully, despite being really prominent in the narrative don't feel like the main characters um they feel they feel developed and engaged in the narrative but they feel also more as if they're antagonistic forces within the narrative rather than the, the than the things that the narrative centers around and so putting them front and center instead of doing Rennell and Jem um, and making them side characters in this story, which we should note, um, while the show has like a one-year time skip narratively, the actual show has like a two-year uh, gap between mm-hmm. season one and season two. So Jem and Rennell are all grown up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, between these seasons. Um, that just... The entirety of it just left me very kind of bored. And I was very kind of frustrated by that. Um, because everything that happens in these four episodes never really grabbed me as much as everything that was happening in the first season. And that was really, really frustrating. So I'm curious about what you in particular found compelling um here aside from um watching benedict wong get just stabbed and watching him slap people around because Mm -hmm. that that benedict wong can do no do no wrong yeah benedict wong is he he shows up as just a you know just a few scenes in season one and gets a big promotion in season two and he's constantly stocking that shelf and I'm trying to figure out what is happening in that store that it's always the same shelf. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, so the the parts of the season that worked for me um, the best was I, the stuff with Lisa. I am actually rather intrigued. What is the relationship between Duchesne? Is it Duchesne? Or, and Lisa? Do we know? Did I miss that? So- no, I think what it basically boils down to is that the implication being that Lisa saved his saved his life to a certain degree because uh-huh. otherwise Ronell was going to kill him. Yeah. Um, okay. At, towards the end of season one. Yeah. 
So that's okay. Because I got the sense that it was something even before that, but I don't couldn't figure that. And it might have been, but I legitimately don't think it is. But, yeah. yeah. Um. So so like I I like that. The, the stuff that we got with Lisa I thought was interesting. I liked the, some of the stuff with Jem. I liked the um, stuff with his dad. I liked, like, spending, like, more time and realizing, oh, it's not that his son, his dad is blowing him off down at the chippy. It's that it's his business, and he's a single parent, and he's got to be constantly at work because otherwise his business is going to go under. Like, the context we got for, for that family I thought worked well. Um, I thought as an antagonist, Vincent was absolutely terrifying and really well done. I 100% assume he gave, he intentionally gave Jem shoddy plants, knowing that would happen, to entrap him. Um, That's Because he's a kid and he doesn't, he, he doesn't know better. Um, I... <laughs> I so was missing Letitia Wright. <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> she would have been great in that, in that storyline. Um, but even like Michaela Coles in a couple episodes, I, I thought some of that stuff was working well. Uh, I, uh, I liked elements of the lawyer stuff we were getting. I thought there was, there was stuff in here that worked, but the balance for me was what was off. And like, I don't, I, I, I am somewhat interested in Duchesne. I am not interested in Sully. I am not interested in Driz. I want more time with Rennell. I want more. I I, uh, I liked Heather quite a bit more. I liked Leon quite a bit more. Those are the characters that are in season one that just aren't in season two. And like, even if I don't love, especially for Leon, where that st- story ended in season one, it felt like a bit on the nose. Um, that level of balance I thought worked really well and then was just not there in season two and they doubled down on the things that I was less invested in but there were things that I did like even if it's just a matter of performance because there are so many actors in this that I have seen in lots of other things and really enjoyed so it was kind of fun to see like I haven't seen Michaela Cole play this type of character before so that was just fun for me so I, I do agree with you regarding um, Lisa and Jim's dad and exploring the economic and development situation within the Summer House neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And it's really kind of frustrating that it doesn't go anywhere for me because it's arguably the interesting thing. In, mm-hmm. I think, in this season. Well, it's um, clear that they expected a season three, because they end on a cliffhanger. Yeah. And then they got one just six years later. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that that's sort of like where I ended up with it, is like the things that I actually do find actively interesting never really come to the forefront enough. Like Lisa's whole thing about trying to keep the salon open never rises beyond making a phone call. Mm-hmm. And I think that the fact that she can't get anywhere is the point. Mm-hmm. But there's not enough narrative space for that in terms of like the community coming to like think about this and that kind of a thing um, to really make it any stronger than I think it should be. Um, and the same thing basically goes with Jim's dad of running the fry shop and everything. Um, and the degrees to which that, like, that weighs on both of them and how that impacts them. And it's just, it's really frustrating, especially considering the fact that one of the things that I think works really well about the first season is how narrow and tight it is. And this season starts 
like slowly tentacling out, but it chooses to grab onto the dullest things that they can pick on, which is everything with the actual like the actual crime shenanigans, basically, mm-hmm. which is a horrible way of phrasing this. But it sort of is what it ultimately feels like is just kind of shenanigans of, all right, well, we got our drugs stolen again. We got to go get them. Mm-hmm. We need help doing that. <laughs> Can we team up again? Um, type of thing. And that relationship never, yeah. So it's just, it just doesn't latch, go into place enough for me in a way that I feel really moved by and then layering in the cops um which who thankfully are never that much of a presence Mm -hmm. um it just never is able to i think shift into that kind of it never finds the same gear that season one does and that was really frustrating i also really liked um what we got with michael i thought that was handled well Uh, even if again where it ends is not yeah necessarily great yeah, the Michael stuff, I think, is supposed to feel like a Ronell redux to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. A what-if Ronell storyline, almost. Yeah. Um, and I think it does work. Like, it just... Because it's so tied up in everything else, because he is the pivot point for everything, um, I keep wanting the story to pull away from it and, like, explore, like what the rest of his life is Mm -hmm. and i don't get a full sense of that and that was that was also just kind of a thing of like no i don't i don't care about sully and duchene's little like like escalation type thing because it never really escalates either they just Mm -hmm. sully in particular just makes poor decisions yeah yeah well and just like the 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 dynamic between them doesn't seem to shift or change um, there's not, I mean, it, yeah, it's just, it's less interesting. It's, it's, yeah. when we go down the chain, the characters get more interesting. Yes. So, like, I, I'm more interested in the character whose name I, is it Crystal or something? I don't remember who, like, runs, goes off to get the shoes, right? I'm way yeah. more interested in her than I am anybody who's on the higher end of the, of the ladder in the, in the yeah. drug world. And it's, <laughs> ideally... In your show that's really centered on the people trying to be in charge, it's the opposite. Um, or they're all interesting. Um, but this is not a The Wire situation where Stringer Bell and Avon are your most interesting characters yeah. in that world. Or among the most interesting characters in that world. Um, so, yeah, it's it was disappointing. I thought the... the you know, we talked last episode about the... Um, the relationship to violence. And I thought that also changed quite a bit in this season. And I was grateful... To have less of it, yes. Um, but also, it felt more standard. What we yes. got, it felt less considered, and it felt more uh, cookie cutter. Um, yeah, like they were actively courting a different audience um, a bit, and so it was. It was. It was interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I fully agree with you. Like the violence is for me, like the rest of the season, just more generic. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's like, yeah, sure, we get to see a guy's arm cut off in a club and a kid thrown over a balcony. Um, but it all just feels... 
it all very much feels of a piece of Duchesne's whole comment to the cops of you watch too much American movie, you watch too many American movies. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this ultimately feels like is y'all, the, whatever happened between the two years. And we should know that like this season has the same writer, uh, Ronan Bennett, who created the show, um, but a totally different director um, from the first season, which I think makes a little bit of a difference, but the writing is, I think, like, the key thing here. Yeah. Um, That it, for whatever reason, buys heavier into kind of standard American crime drama type stuff. um, And never finds a way to provide an actual commentary or an actual interesting pivot point on those concepts. And... Yeah, um, which reminds me of what what were you finding interesting in the lawyer storyline? Um, just the, I mean, I don't buy it, but the way that she gets entrapped into it, right? That she gets pulled in. Um, anyone who's going to make that choice to go out with him deserves what she gets, right? But um, but I thought I I liked. Because normally, I feel like normally when I see these narratives, the lawyer storyline, um, you're, you've just basically got a crooked lawyer who doesn't care if people die. And mm-hmm. I didn't get the sense with that here. So that felt a little different than what I'm used to seeing um, from, like, they're a mob lawyer kind of characters. Sure. And uh, so so that's what the part of that storyline that I was appreciating. And then her trying to get out from it, too, as much as she can and trying to figure out, like, you know, she's placed in a situation that there's no answer right good answer for what she should do and that's a lot of the times in these types of narrative that's what you're doing you give your characters two bad choices and see which ones they make and explain why and show what happens next so that's the part of the lawyer storyline that i was enjoying I, I like the idea of like she presents duchene this different opportunity that he could yes. be going towards and then and instead of her and, and she gambles on him thinking that he's going to be a ticket for her. And instead he pulls her down to, to a different type of crime than the kind she's comfortable with. So I, for me, that was interesting. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I did appreciate like her attempt to semi reform Mm -hmm. because like investing in real estate is also still being a criminal, (laughs) Especially the kind of the attempts of real estate that these uh, folks were interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, character's name's Rihanna um, or Rihanna. I think they pronounce it Rihanna. Um, so I liked, th- I did like that. But again, like the real estate development just n- becomes tied in and then just goes away after that mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. Um, of Duchesne maybe getting involved. Um, so it just, it, there just wasn't, it just wasn't enough. And that was, that was, I just keep going back to frustrating because I feel like so much of what I liked about season one is just not here. And Mm -hmm. it makes me not want to watch season three. Yeah. That's where I'm at with it. I was curious for you if it, it, cause it, it doesn't feel like this is a show that we needed to come back to. Right. Yeah, it doesn't because the first season's really great. The second season for me is really generic. And the third season is not only more of Duchesne and Sully as the primaries, 
It's ten episodes. That's so. That's so many episodes for this kind of show. Yeah, I would be right. fine if we're just done. Maybe we're just done with Top Boy. And we may be like, and I'm okay with that. Um, apologies to Drake. Um, <laughs> you know what? Drake is creepy with underage girls. I'm. I don't feel the need to apologize to Drake. <laughs> fair. That's fair. Um, so I think that's sort of where I end up. Is that I think that the first season is definitely worth watching. Um, because I think it's really, really good and really interesting and is doing some really compelling things with its characters and what it's thinking about in terms of the, how a neighborhood like this operates. And I think season two just loses that interest in favor of telling a much more standard crime narrative. Yeah. And there are more interesting crime narratives out there. Yeah. So, well... On that less than ringing endorsement, listeners, we're going to wrap up our conversation about Top Boy Season 2 or Top Boy Summer House Season 2. Reach out if you've seen them. Let me let us know what you thought. Um, but if you show notes, you can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us at televerse at gmail.com. You can like our page on Facebook and start up a conversation there. You can find the M4A chaptered feed and MP3 unchaptered feed over on Apple Podcasts. And we're also up in Stitcher. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews either place. And of course, we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much for a great week, Kate. I'm glad we're done now because my voice is gone. (laughs) Well, thank you, Noel, for powering through and for our lovely week of TV. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. 